Welcome back to another episode of Behind the Drapes. I'm your host, Kenny. In today's episode, we talk to one of our assistant program directors, Dr. Brenda Satterthwaite. Dr. Satterthwaite is also one of our pediatric anesthesiologists. We get into some topics revolving pediatric anesthesia, including how to handle situations where uh, surgery might need to be rescheduled because your child is sick, and what the clinical circumstances are for when it's acceptable and appropriate to bring a parent back for the induction of anesthesia. We start the conversation off talking about scuba diving and settlers of Catan, and we find our way into the academic and the administrative responsibilities that Dr. Satterthwaite has. Stick around and stay tuned to see what's going on behind the drapes with Dr. Satterthwaite. All right. Well, welcome, Dr. Satterthwaite. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Took a little bit of convincing and a little bit of tooth pulling, <laughs> but I fi- finally convinced you to get on here. Yeah, I don't like being the center of attention, so. So who, whose videos did you watch to do to do your homework? So Alex Cohen's and Caroline's and then Shymal's, um, which were all really good. Um, they're very personable people, so I'm not surprised that they were very good. <laughs> any, any major takeaways? Not to put you on the spot too much. As far as major takeaways, um, I mean, I have found it really interesting hearing everyone's different paths to anesthesia, and I've definitely learned something about each of my colleagues by listening to them, which is pretty cool. Um, despite working with these people for the two past two and a half years, there's little things that I didn't know about their paths to anesthesia. Cool. Yeah, it's all very unique. Like everyone I've talked to, it's like you don't really hear the same story twice. Yeah, yeah, it's really cool. All right, so. Knowing that you're somebody who has built settlements before and built cities in the land of Catan, I want to start (laughs) with a strategy question. When you are placing your first two settlements, where do you typically look to place them on the map? Oh, my first two settlements. So you definitely want to be near like important resources and you like your initial resources are bricks and trees. So you need one settlement near bricks and trees. And later in the game, wheat and rocks are really important. So if you can get next to those two as well, you've set yourself up pretty nicely that you're starting to accumulate those resources. So that's what I try to do. It doesn't always work though. (laughs) Do you have a strategy? I mean, I feel like that's always a good way to start. Uh, recently I've been playing around with the concept of like being near ports and trying to use like mm. a port to your advantage. Um, but I usually only go with that if there's like two of the same resources kind of touching the same number. So you can sort of double up on a number like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good call. I mean, the ports, I feel like, you know, a risky move though, because you don't always get like as many points because you're only next to two resources. So you're missing out on one resource, but it could be beneficial in the end. Mm-hmm. It's all about have you, sac- what's that? Have you had success doing this? Uh, it's been a while since I've played, to be honest. <laughs> I, we should play sometime soon. I know. I know. It's been a while for me, too. We've been really into wingspan lately, especially if it's just Ben and I. Um, it's what a is that? easy game to play. Um, so it's another board game. I'm surprised Hoffman has not told you about this. Uh-uh. Um, very fun board game based off of birds. And like the whole goal is you have like a board in front of you with all different nests and habitats. And you hmm. try to fill in those habitats with different birds. Um, it's all like North American birds. You learn a little bit about the birds as you go too. 
just like little facts, nothing too dorky, uh-huh. um, but it's good. It gets very competitive. Nice. Um, who taught you how to play the game? Was it Ian? Ian introduced it to me. He suggested it. Um, and then I think Stephanie did as well. Mm-hmm. Who's now gone and at Tufts, but she had introduced me to it as well. They both had recommended it independently of each other. Hmm. Big gamers. I was like, all right, I got to get this gotta, game. Yeah. Got to yeah. check, gotta check it out. Both recommended. <laughs> must must be a good sign. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I recommend it to you. Cool. Cool. I'll have to check it out. It's called, not birds. What did you say it was called? Wings? Wingspan. Wingspan. Okay. Yeah, I'll definitely check it out. Um, I know the other thing you and Ben are into <laughs> is traveling. Have you guys uh, traveled recently at all or have any upcoming travel trips planned? Uh, we are T minus three days from heading oh, out. Uh, where are you guys going? Yeah. So we actually, we're headed to Belize. Nice. Uh, this will be a really fun trip. Yeah. Yeah. So it's for our fourth wedding anniversary. Um, awesome. Which is on the fourth. Uh, but Belize, which I didn't know until a, pa- a few years ago, has the second biggest barrier reef in the world mm. um, and the largest living barrier reef. So as far cool. as like scuba diving, uh-huh. it's a really cool place to see marine life and coral um so that was like the big like driver for the trip was to go and do scuba diving have you got so i'm assuming you guys have scuba dived before yes i've been certified since i was 21 so 14 years now um and ben just recently got certified this past november um and he obviously loves it so yeah what got you into it at 21 so it was a college course that I could take for one credit. No kidding. But it was worth like one credit. And I was like, sure, why not? Whoa, um, cool. Yeah, yeah. So got a college credit, got certified. And then it's something I've kept with me ever since. What college did you go to? Michigan State. Okay, okay. Um, Big Ten, Big Ten rival. I went to Penn yeah. State for, uh, for med school. Yeah, yeah, definitely big rivals. Uh, so what's the, I didn't realize we we're going to get to this, but what's the coolest place you've ever scuba dived? Ooh, um, I would have to say Kauai, which is the northernmost nice. island of Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Um, really cool. Ben and I were just there in April and we dived in like these old lava tubes underwater. So it was pretty cool. Wow. We were like going through like these underwater caves wow. and there were big turtles, like probably like two and a half foot wide turtles that were just kind of like nestled into the cave and they would just go like one on top of another and they're mm. sleeping. Whoa, cool. that's very um, cool. How tall, how tall did they go? Uh, there was about five, I think at one point that we saw all just kind of like tucked into the rock there. That's so um, cool. Yeah, yeah. And like really good visibility, like 50 foot visibility. So that's pretty cool. So you can see stuff pretty far from you. Wow, 50, far, then, 50 feet is pretty far. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Ben got to see his first shark. So he was really excited about that. <laughs> I thought we were going to lose him. He saw the shark and just started swimming after. I'm like, okay. What is it like There's to see a sh- forever. What is it like to see a shark in the water? Uh, so I think seeing a shark on the surface is very different than seeing them under the water. Um, okay. Under the water, they don't really like scuba divers or care for us. The bubbles that we blow out. Mm-hmm kind of like scares them. Hmm. So they don't want to really come close to us most hmm. of the time. So from that standpoint, they, you just look like some big fish that's blowing bubbles underwater to them. Um, so they're not really interested in you. 
Um, and they're kind of just going about their own business. Huh. So are there, it's are there pretty dues, cool. do's and don'ts for when you encounter a shark? I mean, as with any marine life, you shouldn't touch it. You know, Safe. keep your hands to yourself. You yeah. should, you know, look at it, observe it and leave it alone. Cool. Do you guys go down with lights and like a camera or anything? Or is, is it just like, like when you're in caves, you must have to have a light, I assume. Yeah, so our guide had a light for Hawaii. And then Ben and I just got a GoPro for this trip because we're, nice. we're going to Belize. I mean, this should be some pretty epic scuba diving. Yeah. So we were like, we should get a GoPro. So I'll have some good footage hopefully for you. You're going to have some show and tell when you get back now. Yes. Yes. That is the goal. And there's lots of sharks. So we'll see. Awesome. That's super cool. How many times has yeah, uh, Ben has Ben gone scuba diving now? Uh, so Hawaii was the first time he had gone since he was certified. Uh, but him and I had gone twice together in Puerto Rico, um, which was where he did some of his certification dives, which we had a pretty cool dive story from there too. Uh, we had manatees come up to us while we were underwater, wow. which are like 10 to 12 feet long, like huge, uh, uh -huh. animals. And they came right up next to us, two of them, just checking us out, seeing what we were doing down there. That's cool. So yeah, a little humbling at the same time. So I was like, yeah. what is this huge thing? Like swimming up next to me. And then I like realized what it was. I was like, oh, it's a manatee. And then it just got as close as it could, which is cool. Do you feel like you're a good enough swimmer to like swim out of danger if you had to? Oh, no. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, part of the swimming uh, is that you're not really swimming. Um, you're kind of just like kicking your feet. But most things underwater are way faster than us. I think almost everything is. So. Uh, all right. And last, you're kind of just there. <laughs> last diving question. Does it feel sure. cold under? Does it feel cold underwater? I imagine you wear like a wetsuit, but what's the temperature like? Uh, it does get cold. I am a warm water diver for sure. Mm -hmm. um, I usually don't like to dive in water that's less than 80 degrees, but even 80 degrees when you're under, like when you go in for a dive, you're going to dive for about 45 minutes. So being submerged in 80 degree water for 45 minutes, you do get cold. Mm -hmm. um, I always wear a wetsuit mm -hmm. when I'm down there. Um, that helps a lot to like maintain body temperature. Uh, but usually by the time you usually do two or three dives in a day, okay. by the time I'm on like the second half of my second dive, I'm usually like pretty cold mm -hmm. and come out shivering Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and have to warm up, but it's worth it. Oh, I bet. I bet the views are totally worth it. And the stories sound amazing. And the stories, yeah. Very cool. Wow. Cool. I did not know that you were a big scuba diver, but that was awesome. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully I've convinced you now. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. I'd love to check it out. Um, so you should. Why don't we start with how you got into anesthesia? Like what was it? Was yeah, it a time I in med school or even before med school that first got you interested? Yeah, I mean, I wish I could say it was a time before med school, but it was right, like starting my third year of medical school. Um, I unfortunately didn't have any great mentors, like no one in my family was a doctor, I didn't know any doctors. So I kind of went into med school kind of blind, and then just had the med school experience and just like whatever opportunities came to me, I tried them out. Mm -hmm. um, but at the beginning of my third year of medical school, 
we got to pick one elective for the entire third year. And then otherwise we had the very generic, like internal medicine, peds, OB, surgery. And that was it before fourth year started. So I bought a book uh, on how to pick a medical specialty, like very dorky, but like now looking back, that was probably one of the smarter things I did. Cause I was like, I have no idea. Like I have minimal exposure to most specialties in medicine. And now I'm like making a decision that's hopefully going to be my lifelong career. Um, so I bought a book and read through all the different specialties and came upon anesthesia. And I'm like, wow, that actually sounds like something that is really cool, would be a really fun lifestyle. Um, and kind of fits with like my goals on like what kind of doctor I want to be. Um, so I, from that book, I decided to choose my elective in anesthesia in December of my third year. And within like the first two weeks, I'm like, yes, sign me up. Like after seeing my first nerve block, I was like, that is so cool. And never looked back. Do you remember what the the title and the author of the book were? No, I wish I would have kept it. Now, like knowing like how, like it has affected my career, should have kept it. Um, Do you remember some of the parts of what it said about anesthesia that captivated you? I mean, it was definitely talking about like, never like sitting down, you don't really have an office job, which was huge for me. Um, And then like combining, and this is the very generic like thing that a lot of medical students tell us when they interview with us is like, the anatomy, physiology, pharmacology stuff, like those were all things that I excelled in, um, in undergrad and medical school. So areas um, that I was really interested in. Um, and then the part of like just having to think quickly on your feet and like no day is ever the same. Um, I just thought that sounded really cool and something that was like going to keep me engaged for the rest of my career. Hmm. Yeah. And did it live up to the hype? Yeah. Yeah. It's actually way better than I imagined. Um, it's a very cool specialty and no day is ever the same. <laughs> very true. What are some of your favorite parts about the job? Uh, I mean, definitely getting to work with multiple different people every single day, like getting to work with different surgeons every day. Um, we have a pretty big group and obviously a lot of residents, CRNAs. And so getting to you know interact with people on a daily basis is really cool. Um, the care that we provide for patients, I think is really unique. I don't think I fully grasped that when I was thinking about doing anesthesia in medical school, just like how important you are as far as like keeping a patient calm and like helping them kind of go through what what probably is one of the harder days of their lives. Um, and you know, being that liaison for them and kind of speaking out for them, um, and making sure their voice is heard. Yeah. Um, what do you think some of the hardest parts about the job are? Uh, it's a lot of responsibility. Um, we are taking over a patient's ventilation and managing their blood pressure. Um, and so we take care of really sick patients. And there's times where you're just not sure if they're even going to make it through the surgery. So I feel like there's a lot of pressure involved with our job, um, along with like bad things happen during the surgery sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and being able to deal with that and also learning how to kind of car- compartmentalize that, um, to go on and still like live a regular life and still have a fulfilling job, even when bad things do happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A little, 
lot of emotional baggage that you can come home with if you don't have the right avenues to handle that stress and, you know, emotion that comes with it. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't, I don't think there's any point in your career where people tell you how to deal with that kind of stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. hopefully you've learned like slowly and like as a resident, you slowly get involved and like watch how your attendings react to, you know, bad things happening in the OR, bad outcomes um, and learn from them. But it can be hard, especially your first couple of years. Yeah. I mean, you're not somebody who I feel like wears their emotions on their sleeves. And I mean that like in a positive way, like you don't seem very bogged down by the job. Are there ways that you've developed um, decompressing and letting go of some of the stress when you get home? Yeah. I mean, I try not to bring too much home with me. Um, If bad things happen, I usually talk to my colleagues like very early on and like, get their opinions. Um, or if I'm worried something bad's going to happen, <laughs> I'll definitely like consult my colleague who I think is an expert in that area. Um, and obviously try my best and, and feel like I am as well prepared as possible going into a potential bad situation. And then once it happens, like I wear everything on my sleeve as far as like sharing with people. Like if something bad happens, I will tell my colleagues everything that happened and like ask them for like their advice or like, you know, what could I have done differently so that hopefully I find this to be a learning opportunity. Um, and then once I get home, my husband's obviously a very good listener. <laughs> um, so I definitely tell him some work stories. He has some boundaries that he doesn't want to hear about everything in our job. Um, but I think also having like a good outlet. Um, one of the things I love to do is working out and that has helped me a ton. Um, especially when I'm very stressed, being able to go out for a nice run is almost like a meditation for me. This is an intermission. You're about halfway through the episode. Now would be a good time to take a break, put the podcast down and come back to it at a later time. If you're really into the episode and you want to keep pushing forward, then just push ahead 15 seconds and keep on going. If you do take a break, you're going to want to be sure to come back because most of the guests seem to save their best for last. and You're not going to want to miss what's coming up next. Awesome. Um, so you're acknowledging how stressful the job is within itself. <laughs> and then you went on to do an additional year of training in what I consider to be one of the top uh, stressful subspecialties within anesthesiology. So what about pediatric anesthesiology drew you to the field? Yeah, I mean, I think part of me enjoys putting myself in that situation and being in that stressful situation. Uh, But for pediatrics itself, um, there's so much. I mean, number one, kids are just adorable. And they, even in the hardest of times, I feel like they lighten up the day. Um, They're just very innocent. um, And that makes it very easy to enjoy it. Um, Other than that, the people who take care of kids, I think, have like just a certain sense of them. They're genuinely nice people. And the care that is provided to pediatrics is so patient centered. So like your nurses, your surgeons, it's just a little, it's a very big difference in environment between that and adults. And so I really enjoy that experience where it's just a hundred percent, everyone's focused on the patient. Um, Like for example, um, in our ORs, we can have like a kid who's really scared to come to the OR And the nurse, the surgeon, they're all getting like the room ready. They put some fun TV show up on the TV, you know, 
the nurse is like singing along with them to their favorite song. Um, so it's just such a different experience than the adult side of things that I think adds to the fun and kind of like balances out um, that extra stress that is associated um, with peds. That along with that, um, it's just like a totally different um patient that you're caring for, like as far as pharmacology, physiology. Um, and I really enjoy that part of it as well. It's so funny whenever I'm on my pediatric rotation and Lillian pulls up YouTube on our TV at home, she'll start <laughs> seeing like Coco Melon or like, like little kid movies like recommended in like our YouTube videos. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just all because it's like the, one of the best ways to like calm a child down when they first get to the OR. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. She's like, what are you doing at work? <laughs> <laughs> She's like, what did you get so obsessed with like Coco Melon or, <laughs> or Frozen? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, peds will do that to you. Yeah, yeah. Um, when residents first start the rotation, what's one thing that you tend to have them focus on since it's such a big jump from treating adults to treating children? Yeah, I mean, I think... We tried to encourage this with adults too, but definitely in pediatrics, I tell them to focus on the airway. Don't chart, nothing else, like focus on the airway. Since we do mask inductions um, without an IV, the airway is like the most important thing you have when you are getting a, a pediatric patient off to sleep. Um, so being able to focus on the airway, you know, notice obstruction if there's anything. Um, and then from there, I would say dosing the medications. I think that's usually a very big jump when going from adults to pediatrics that everything has to be weight-based dosing and can be very challenging, um, especially in those first couple of weeks. Yeah, I tend to have my calculator out of my phone quite often, basically the whole time throughout surgery. Which is totally fine. And I always tell the residents, if you don't know a dose, don't guess, please just text me. Mm -hmm. Um, just because you really don't want to overdose a kid. Mm -hmm. A little bit can be a lot. Yes, absolutely. Especially in the little kiddos. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I remember, I think probably the one time I really appreciated the size of the little kids was like transfusing blood in like a NICU baby. And when you just do it, like a syringe at a time, uh, really makes right. you appreciate just, just how small quantities we're working with. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You give like 20 cc's. You're like, okay, I just gave him a transfusion. Yeah. Yeah. That's impressive. Um, I think one of the other additional challenges in pediatrics is uh, dealing with and working with parents who, like you mentioned before, these parents and these patients are coming to us in one of their most stressful days in their lives. Um, and when you're dealing with parents, I think there's two scenarios that come up pretty often. Um, it can either go really well or they can make your day really stressful. Uh, the first being when a kid comes to us to have surgery, but they have a cold. Um, and it's, let's say, just a kid who constantly has a cold or a family who has multiple kids. Um, and it seems like the parents are never able to get everyone healthy. Um, and it's a huge deal for them to take work off. Uh, but in the back of your mind, you're concerned that it might be unsafe to proceed with a surgery. So how do you handle conversations like that with parents? Yeah, so it's always a difficult conversation 
kind of like you're alluding to the kids either always sick or the parents have a limited amount of time they get to take off work and they've taken this day off and or they've taken the week off because maybe the kids having their tonsils out or something like that and they had to be home with them so the idea of rescheduling a case is kind of just heartbreaking to them they're, they've dedicated a lot of time and effort to get the kid here so it's always a balance as with most parts of medicine risks versus benefits and so I will have a conversation with the parents. You first want to see how sick the kid is. Um, I think at this point, most pediatric anesthesiologists are okay with a runny nose. Like that's not going to cause much harm. But what you really want to get concerned about is when a kid has a productive cough, fever, um, and they actually look sick, uh, which are all red flags that they could have some pretty serious respiratory problems with anesthesia. And that is my job to kind of tease out whether this kid could make it through the procedure safely, or if I think they might be admitted afterwards or even go to the ICU with a breathing tube in, which is what I definitely want to avoid and obviously want to do what's safest for them. So that's about the time that I have, I mean, I have about this exact conversation with the parents is, you know, here's my concerns. Um, you know, I either suggest waiting, which is usually waiting four weeks, which is a long time, um, or telling them that, you know, there's these risks involved, but I'm pretty sure we can get your kid through, uh, this procedure, but I need you to acknowledge that those risks are there. Mm -hmm. Um, how long do you think it took you to develop your barometer for knowing if a kid is sick or not, just like by doing your eyeball test? Yeah. So I would say like my first couple years as an attending, you know, those that first year as attending, you don't want to be the person that's canceling cases. So I definitely think I got myself into a few situations that I was like, oh, wow, this is like more intense mm -hmm. than I had anticipated. Or, you know, I wish I would have like asked more questions about their sickness mm -hmm. um, and would have dug at this a little bit more before I brought the kid back to the operating room. Um, but now let's say I feel pretty confident in knowing like, okay, this kid will probably do well. I mean, I always prepare for the worst and hope for the best. Yep. That's a lot of anesthesia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's like half your guys' training. Yeah. Um, the second part of dealing with parents is the decision to bring a parent back for induction. Um, I sort of did most of my rotations during the time of COVID. And during that time, we weren't really letting parents come back. So it was just the kids by themselves, um, which had its own benefits and challenges that we kind of all worked through. And uh, now we're getting back into the culture of inviting one of the parents to come back to us. Uh, so what's your typical approach to having that initial conversation with a parent? Um, and how do you handle one way or the other if the parent does or does not come back? Yeah, I mean, so to start, this is a very unique situation. I would say it's very institution based. A lot of places have moved away from bringing parents back to the operating room, um, just because we've had some great studies over the past few years that have showed pre-medication is sometimes a better option uh, than parental presence for induction is the medical term for it. Um, but it's something that after COVID, we brought back to our current hospital. And there's a few things that I look for um, as far as when it's okay to bring a parent back versus when I think it would be better or maybe even safer 
for the child to come back without the parent. Um, first of all, we look at age. So most kids that are less than a year old don't have stranger danger and they will separate from their parents perfectly fine. Um, so usually for those kids, I do not bring the parents back. I don't offer to have them come back. Um, and it also like helps me out because those are also sometimes our more challenging airways, challenging IV access. And those are the kids that I want to be a hundred percent focused on them as they're going off to sleep. Um, so it helps to not have the parents there for them. Uh, the other side of that age group is, is for 10 year olds and up most kids, once they hit their teenage years, they're fairly independent and feel comfortable leaving with a medical professional um, to go off to sleep. And then any kids that have an IV in as well, we can give pre-medication very easily through the IV and separate from the parents. So those are the kids that are like definite no's. Um, but then you have those kids that fall right between the ages of one to 10. And you have to decide whether you think the parents should come back or not. For those kids, I base it off of my interaction with the kids. There's those like three, four, five, six-year-olds that just come up to you and want to tell you everything and like want you to play with them. Those are the kids that I'm not worried about at all. They are going to do fine in the OR. Um, they don't mind like walking away with strangers and they're usually like playful. And usually you can introduce them to the mask and tell them to take, you know, 20 big breaths and they're going to pop up this balloon and they'll do it. Um, but then you have the kids that are a little more shy, you know, they're attached to mom or dad in the preoperative area. They don't want to get off mom and mom or dad's lap. They kind of shy away um, when you go to talk to them. And those are the kids that you might want to consider bringing the parents back for. Um, I have found that with some of those kids, it helps tremendously to have their parents there. They feel safer. Um, a lot of times I'll let the parents hold the mask for them so that it's, you know, again, their mother or father that's holding a mask on their face, not some stranger. Right. Um, and I've had really good success with that. Um, but you always have to be careful and make sure that the parents are appropriate to come back as well. Um, I have found that parental induction can be really, really challenging for parents. Um, it's hard for parents to watch their kids go off to sleep. Um, I've had multiple parents where we'll get the patient off to sleep and then they just are crying and like weeping at the bedside and you can't get them out of the room. Um, so you kind of want to keep your eye out for parents where you're like, you know, maybe they're already crying in pre-op when you're telling them, you know, the anesthesia plan, like those are probably yeah. parents that are going to have a really hard time watching their kid go off to sleep. Right. Um, and then you always want to just, again, it's a judgment call on whether, you know, you think there's any behavioral issues that could cause a problem with getting the kid off to sleep with the parents. Um, so those are the few things that I look at when I'm thinking about bringing a parent back. Yeah, it's a lot to process and go through your head before you get into that situation. <laughs> but I imagine the more experience you have and the more times you go through it, the more you're able to kind of predict what's gonna happen next. Yeah, absolutely. Again, it's kind of like a barometer. You're kind of like, get used to feeling parents out and whether it's a good situation versus it might be easier on them or maybe even the kid if they didn't come back. Mm -hmm. Cool. Well, in our last few minutes here, I kind of wanted to just shift into some of the duties that you have outside of your clinical duties. Um, one of mm -hmm. them being the site director at Miriam, which is one of the hospitals that 
most of our CA1 spend majority of their time in for the first portion of their training. Um, so I want to ask what that's like kind of being the one um, supporting these residents when they're first starting off and helping them get off the ground in a job, like you said, that's stressful and isn't always easy to pick up when you first began your first like six months of training. Yeah, so I think the Miriam is a really nice place to start out as a CA1. We have a lot of like your classic bread and butter cases that happen at our hospital. Um, like a lot of, you know, GI based surgeries, urology, and then a ton of orthopedics. Um, so as far as like getting them started, it is a lot of just like, one-to-one -one training, which we have great attendings that do that. Um, but along with that, I think they get a really unique experience because they get to start doing spinals and like peripheral nerve blocks very early on in their training, um, which again, can be very challenging for them. Luckily at the Merriam, we do have some awesome protocols that they can use to refer to for like our total joint procedures, along with like our ERAS based um GI cases. So from that standpoint, I think it's a nice place to get started. It's also a little bit of a smaller hospital and a smaller OR. So you can get to know the nurses better, you get to know your way around um, versus Rhode Island Hospital, which is a very, very large hospital. What do you think has been some of the challenges that you've seen come up commonly? Yeah, so I think anytime you go somewhere new, you have to learn like the different like rules and expectations. Um, and I think that's sometimes challenging for our residents. And I think sometimes the expectations of our residents are a little too high by some of our ancillary staff. Um, so I think that's one of the more challenging things that I deal with at the Merriam is trying to make sure that the residents are being, being treated appropriately um, and also setting expectations for the staff that, hey, you know, we have residents that are within their first two months of anesthesia residency. Mm -hmm. If they forget to put in PACU orders, it's okay. <laughs> like, they're just learning, like give them a break. You know, uh, they just did their first successful spinal today. That was huge. Like they right. will learn to do that smaller, smaller stuff in time. Um, so for me, it's a lot of just balancing um, the feedback from the staff and making sure the residents are doing well. Cool. And in my two and a half years here, I've kind of seen you take on more of a leadership role in a residency program. Um, now you're on the interview committee chair or committee of like interviewing applicants for a residency. Um, so final question, where do you see yourself going in this career and what kind of goals do you set for yourself? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm pretty happy where I'm at. Like this is pretty awesome what I get to do. I really enjoy getting to work with residents um, and being part of the resident education process along with recruitment of residents. Um, this was a goal that I probably had for my 40-year-old self. So I'm kind of lucky that I've been able to join this program and be involved from such an early start in my career. Um, so at this point, I would say as far as goals, I want to continue doing what I'm doing. Um, I, you know, potentially getting more involved in the education process, um, moving forward, um, again, trying to do projects and stuff with residents. Um, but as far as other career goals, like 
want to just continue learning how to be a great anesthesiologist. I think I know a lot, but there's so much more to learn. Um, so I think continuing to work towards that in the future as well. Yeah, I have no doubt that you're going to just keep doing great things in academic medicine because you're a huge role model, um, a huge advocate for residents. And I think a lot of residents really enjoy their days when they're working with you. Um, so thank you for being thank you. thank you for being a great mentor for all of us. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. And thank you for teaching me about snorkeling. I'm definitely going to have to check out snorkeling <laughs> and how I can get certified. You got to go scuba diving, not snorkeling. That's, that's right. That's right. I'm going to go scuba diving. <laughs> If I'm scuba go, diving, it's way cooler. If I'm going to go through, what do you call them? The tubes that you were going through? Lava tubes. If I'm going to be going through lava tubes, I mean, come on. How, how better can you sell it? Yeah, it's pretty cool. I highly recommend it. And we got to get uh, some marathon training and coming up soon here. Yes, yes. Shaimal just sent me a text today trying to recruit me. Uh, so... I got to talk to Ben tonight. It's on let's, the list. <laughs> let's get some miles under our belt before May comes up. Yes, yes, I need to. All right, Brenda, well, it was great chatting with you. Thank you for your time. And I'll probably see you soon at work. Yeah, thanks for having me, Kenny. This was fun. Of course. Talk to you later. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Behind the Drapes. If you like what you hear, be sure to hit the subscribe button so that you can get all the new episodes of the show as they drop right to your homepage. If you really, really liked what you hear, be sure to rate and review so that other people can find the show easily and also tell a friend so they could check it out too. Special thanks to all the guests who come on the show and help make my job a lot easier and hopefully make an entertaining time for you guys to listen to. We'll see you next time.